Uh, my first like major backcountry trip is I got invited on a hut trip. I was still a mogul skier, so in 2013, and I had no gear. Um, so I went to the rental shop and I rented boots, I rented skis, I rented skins, um, and an avalanche setup. And my feet cramped so horrifically badly on the skin track in that I was like, do I just like take my boots off and walk barefoot in the snow? Of course I didn't do that, um, but it was humbling. It was humbling. Um, but day two, getting to wake up in this hut and drink your coffee and go outside and eat lunch in the snow and ski low angle powder and just get that sense of relaxation and a different type of way of connecting with the mountains made like all the foot pain worth it. And I was like kind of instantly hooked um, to get to connect in a different way with my friends in the mountains versus on the resort. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the 23rd episode of the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. As always, I'm Shanti, joined by the awesome Mary Kokenauer, and we're glad you're back with us. So we're going to be doing something a little different on today's show, and we're going to have two guests joining me and Mary on the show instead of just the usual one. And so our first guest is who you just heard that opening quote from, a awesome badass woman by the name of Sophia Schwartz, a top 10 World Cup finisher and 2013 national champion in mogul skiing. But we're not actually going to be talking that much today with Sophia about her championships and her World Cup placements. Um, specifically, we're going to talk with her about how she recently shifted to backcountry skiing, because that probably applies a little bit more to our audience as a whole, because I don't think all of us are exactly world-class championship mogul and downhill skiers. So as part of it, we're going to learn from Sophia how she specifically made the transition to backcountry skiing. And honestly, it didn't go very smoothly for her. Basically, the big problem she had was she didn't have the right gear on her first trip out. So we're going to talk with her a little bit about how that transition worked. And then we're going to use that to bring in our second guest on the podcast, specifically the editorial director of Gear Junkie, Sean McCoy. And so the whole point of talking with Sophia and Sean, we're going to be talking about the gear you might need if you want to go out backcountry skiing this winter. Specifically, we're going to talk about must-haves, uh, shortcuts you can take in your budget, what pieces of gear you want to splurge on, things like that. Um, who knows? We're probably going to have a few arguments back and forth about what piece of gear is the best one. Um, but bottom line is, if you're looking to go out backcountry skiing this winter and you're trying to figure out what gear you should get, you're going to want to tune in for this next hour. It's really good stuff. But I can tell you this. Yeah, we might argue on a few things about what the right gear is, but there's one piece of gear that we can all agree that you all need to invest in. Gaia GPS. Look, whether you're backcountry skiing, whether you're out hiking a trail, or you're just looking for a really good car camping spot down in the desert to get away from all this winter snow, doesn't matter. You're going to need Gaia GPS. Gaia GPS has all the maps you need and all the navigation tools you need to let you know exactly where you are on the map. With a membership, you can download your maps so that they work offline, even when you're off the grid and far away from any cell service. I know, personally, I use it all the time to explore all the trails in the Wasatch Range just outside my front door here in Utah. And of course, Mary also relies on it a ton to find her way around in Montana. And same for you. Doesn't matter where you are on the planet, you can use it wherever you are. And here's the best thing. Right now, you as a podcast listener is a small way of us saying thanks for you listening to the show. Right now, you can get up to 50% off on a Gaia GPS Premium Membership. Just go to GaiaGPS.com, G-A-I-A-GPS.com slash podcast to snatch the deal. All right, enough talk for me. Let's actually get to interviewing. Everybody, we give you Sophia Schwartz and Sean McCoy. Let's go.
Thanks for joining us so much today, Sophia. Glad you're on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I want to start with you for a little bit. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background with skiing in general? Yeah, um, my name is Sophia Schwartz. I was born in Telluride, Colorado, and I was one of those little kids that couldn't really walk, but was somehow on skis sliding down the mountain. Um, and as a young kid, I got hooked on mogul skiing. I think Telluride lends itself really well to that in the terrain it has. And instantly loved freestyle. I loved everything about it from the bumps to hitting jumps and wanted to pursue it. So even as a young kid, um, had hopes and dreams of the U S ski team and the Olympics, um, and was able to have the support system to kind of help pursue that from my family and my friends and my school and ended up going on to be a professional mogul skier on the U S team. And then I always wanted to get into big mountain skiing. Um, and so I knew when my mogul career was coming to an end that I wanted to make that transition. And so three years ago, I made the switch, moved to Jackson, Wyoming. Um, and now I am primarily a big mountain skier and ski mountaineer. Was it hard to make the switch? Because when I when I view freestyle skiing and, and mogul skiing, it's such a like a contrived sport to me. Like, you know, you have a specific course with built jumps and you ski a certain way and then all of a sudden you're you've reached your pinnacle on that. Um, and then you move into backcountry skiing, which to me is just kind of the chaos and wilds of the backcountry. Is there a difference to you or what drew you to backcountry skiing? Totally, Mary. I think that mogul skiing has a lot of structure, um, which I really appreciate. I'm a type A nerd for sure. So I love having a coach and I love having that support system and goals. And a lot of that disappeared in backcountry. I think the actual ski technique translates really well because as a mogul skier, you have to ski really variable terrain um, and it tends to be icy or powder or crusty and you have to be really quick on your feet. So coming into backcountry, you know, a lot of times you're skiing a steep line, but at least there aren't five foot icy moguls on it. Um, and if there are, you can still manage your way down. But it took a lot of kind of reflecting of saying, huh, like there's a mismatch between like what I know in my ski technique compared to what I know in the backcountry. So it was actually really fun to get to be a total rookie and a total noob in a sport that I had spent my entire life doing. So what was that like then the first time you went out into the backcountry after spending your time um, in uh, on mogul skiing, being an expert skier? What was that like? Was it like a total disaster or was it like, wow, this went really, really, really well? What was the experience like? A mixed disaster, I would say. Uh, my first like major backcountry trip is I got invited on a hut trip with some of just my most wonderful friends when I was le living in Steamboat, and it worked out between my competition schedule, so I could actually go. And this is I was still a mogul skier, so in 2013, and I had no gear. Um, so I went to the rental shop and I rented boots, I rented skis, I rented skins, um, and an avalanche setup. And my feet cramped so horrifically badly on the skin track in that I was like, do I just like take my boots off and walk barefoot in the snow? Of course, I didn't do that. Um, but it was humbling. It was humbling. Um, but day two, getting to wake up in this hut and drink your coffee and go outside and eat lunch in the snow and ski low angle powder and just get that sense of relaxation and a different type of way of connecting with the mountains made like all the foot pain worth it. 
And I was like kind of instantly hooked um, to get to connect in a different way with my friends in the mountains versus on the resort. And Sophia, where do you live now? Now I live in Jackson, Wyoming. Okay. And obviously there's a lot of backcountry there. Um, From that first time, did you just continue to pursue backcountry more? And how did you do it? Did you have a mentor or have a group of friends that knew more what they were doing? How did you break into this sport that can sometimes see, seem intimidating to people? Yeah, that's a great question. I made my transition to backcountry after an injury. So I had a stress fracture in my back, um, which kind of ended my mogul skiing career or kind of gave me this opportunity to try something else. And so in that, you know, four month recovery of sitting on the couch, I sat with myself and asked if this was really the path I wanted to take. And it just like made my heart flutter. And so then I kind of had this time to start thinking about it. So the first thing I did is I looked at my recovery schedule. And once I was cleared, I immediately booked an Avi one course. And I was like, this is where I have to start. Um, I went online and got a ski setup off of uh, the classifieds and, you know, kind of got that low entry level ski. Um, and then when I was finally like healed enough to kind of start walking again and training again, um, just did some practice going up the local ski hill, um, which allowed uphill travel um, safely in the correct hours, and then just getting used to my gear and coming back down. And then since then, I've really just like jumped in fully. Um, I've had really great mentors. I've basically emailed any person I can think of to ask for advice and offer to get coffee with them and sit and just learn from them. Um, And then I've been lucky to have friends who've really kind of taken me under their wing um, and kind of given me some experience in that. But it's been a really rapid transition. um, And it's something I'm always asking myself is like, what don't I still know about this sport? And um, how do I continue to grow in the mountains and recognize that I still have a pretty big mismatch between my mountain sense and my ski ability? Is this part of the reason you moved to Jackson to get more of the backcountry experience or is it just a chance to go to Jackson? Absolutely. Um, I think of any ski town, Jackson kind of has the most close-knit community of mentorship, especially the women here. There are so many inspiring women and you run into them in the grocery store and you run into them on the tram. Um, And so people like Lindsay Dyer drew me here, Crystal Wright, Kit Delorier, Jess McMillan, um, Jess Baker. It's inspiring. And then you get to see them, yeah, in the coffee shop. Um, And so I try to just be a giant nerd and admit that I'm a fangirl and be like, okay, just like send them an email, send them a text, um, ask if you can learn from them. And I have found it to be an environment in which people say yes. And then you get to like, you know, blush and freak out a little bit because they're so cool. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. They're my heroes for sure. Um, Who's your go-to backcountry partner? Give them a shout out. Yeah. So uh, my two partners are actually named Ian and Ian. So it's me and the Ian. Um, And last year we were training to go to Denali together. So we did an incredible amount of skiing and preparation and work. And unfortunately, when that trip got canceled, um, we had to kind of pick our brains and decided to do a 14 day traverse across the entire Wind River range. Um, 
And that ended up being 100 plus miles with over 70 pounds of gear. Um, but we really just wanted to hide in a tent together um, and get to <laughs> hang out. And that was like the driving mission uh, to kind of put our skills to use, but also just to have this adventure as friends together. You still plan to go back and hit Denali? Yeah, it is on the, the training plan for this year. Excellent. So now you did something called the trifecta. You want to explain that to us? Yeah. Um, the trifecta is this are these three really technical ski lines um, off of the resort on Jackson. Um, the first one is called Central Kuar, and it's off of Cody Peak. And it's this like tight, narrow Kuar that ends in a 30-foot cliff. So the whole time you're skiing down this uh, the choke, I think, is like 50 degrees, and you know eventually you're going to have to do this big jump. Um, immediately from there, you can kind of cut and hit a run called Breakneck, which has these big cliff bands you have to navigate. And then the last one is Gothic, um, which is, again, a really tight couar, and the big drop is up top. There's a 15-foot jump, and then you're in the very tight couar, and you have to straight line the whole thing out of it. And so that was part of a bigger project I did this year called Jack of All Trades. And um, I set these three goals to excel in different types of skiing, which came from a mogul skier. I think as a mogul skier, you have to be able to do it all. You have to ski fast. You have to handle bumps. You have to jump. And I love growing in those different aspects. Um, I think it also helps keep me safe. You know, if it's a bad avalanche day and the hazard's high, I'm so thankful I can just go build a jump with my buddies and stay safe in that capacity. Um, so the three big goals were to land a double backflip because I've never done one on snow ski the trifecta and to ski the Grand Teton. And somehow they all came to fruition despite even like COVID and other challenges, um, feel really, really lucky. And it was fun to make it into a video project. So people can check that out. It's hosted by Fisher. So it's, um, Fisher sports backslash Jack of all trades. Man, that sounds really cool. That's epic. A little <laughs> bit scary if you ask yeah. me, but, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> You know, I kind of want to go back a little bit to, you mentioned something about getting into backcountry skiing and you got your gear off of Craigslist. Even you, this this professional skier, you you started out with kind of a, a basic setup. Tell us about your first set of backcountry uh, equipment. Totally. Yeah, I only had two pairs of mogul skis and those were my powder skis as well. Um, and so uh, knowing that I needed new gear, you know, it is an investment. And I think that it can be hard to know exactly what you want. Um, so I wanted to start kind of like conservatively and then continue to learn more before investing. And so um, I got a pair, I don't even, I think they were black diamond skis um, with marker, the frame bindings, because they would work with my current ski boots um, and a pair of skins. And luckily kind of found a size that worked for me off the classifieds. And I think I invested like 250 bucks um, in this setup. And it's been really fun because I've gotten to actually pass them on to like one of my dearest friends um, when she was getting into backcountry and she got to use them on a hut trip we went on. So it was fun to see sort of like the evolution of like myself, you know, starting in this sense and then getting to pass it on to a friend. Looking back on it um, and the gear that you've been getting over the last few years, would you say 
you like the approach of starting off with small and then advancing along towards better and better gear. Do you think it should be more of a buy once, cry once philosophy for gear? <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that expression. That's the best thing I've heard. <laughs> I think it's a balance, definitely. I think um, it depends how you want to use your setup. If you want to use it for exercise and it lets you get out the door um, between like your kids having dinner and like your family movie and you're going to go climb up the local ski hill and ski down. Um, absolutely. I would say like find a setup that works for that and in your investment. I think if you're looking to continually like progress in the mountains, um, gear really matters for weight. And I remember being so much lower than all of my friends. Granted, mm -hmm. I was transitioning from being, you know, a 30 second skier where I took the chairlift back up every day to having to walk for many, many hours. So my fitness changed a lot. But I remember being like, how can you step that far? How are you so fast? And they were like, well, your ski boots don't even have walk modes, Sophia. Like, of course you can't flex this way. Um, so I think it's a balance for sure. With buy once, cry once to sometimes when you're just getting started, especially in like backcountry skiing, you might not know exactly what you want. And it takes quite a long time to like figure out what type of gear works best for you. Did you, did you find you yourself kind of messing with your kit for a while and, and, you know, saying I like this ski better than that ski and just kind of dialing it in over the years? I'm definitely still tinkering. I think the thing I got right from the start were my ski boots. Um, and that I think and that's, that's shocking yeah, <laughs> because really. usually it's the ski boot that causes all the trouble, but yeah, totally. tell us more. Um, but yeah, still learning kind of like, what does it mean to have different skin technology and when are they a pro and when are they a con? Um, I did the entire traverse, the winds traverse with skins that didn't have tail clips on them <laughs> because they had fallen <laughs> off through the season and I was too lazy to like reinvest in new ones. Um, so I think there are definitely times that you can like skimp on some things and there are definitely times where it's like a full investment and like you better really, really care about that piece of equipment. Absolutely. This is a side question that I had for you, Sophia, when you're transitioning from the 30 seconds of downhill skiing to now you're putting on skins to be going uphill. Uh, how is that different for your leg muscles? Like what leg muscles should you be training? Definitely. They're pretty similar in kind of, you know, like your glutes are still super important and your hamstrings and your quads. Um, but the type of training is a lot more like low heart rate uh, base training. It's pretty cool to see kind of like that transition in my own body. Um, but I had done a good amount of cardio for mobile skiing because that cardio system actually helps you recover quicker. And so it seems kind of counterintuitive for a 30 second skier to do cardio. Um, but what it means is that when I'm sitting on the chairlift, I'm fully recovered by the time I get off the chairlift. And now every training run, I'm more effective and I'm able to like stay in that really like important energy zone where I'm getting purposeful training instead of having to quit on my eighth run because I'm tired. I can now get 10, 11, 12 runs, um, which really improves my training. But now I laugh because I'm like, I don't know where my days go. And I'm like, oh, right. You went on a 10 hour tour today. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course, you don't have time to like do anything else. Um, but it's been really, really cool to change training types. I've got to know, do you still mogul ski sometimes? 
So Jackson, I think, is really funny because they don't have the best mogul skiing. Um, a lot of the terrain here is pretty double fall line and so steep that moguls don't really develop. But when I go back to Colorado, like, absolutely, I am so excited to get in the bumps. Um, and Jackson's really funny. I think I'll introduce myself as a mogul skiing. People will nod their head and be like, oh, yeah. Oh, man, I hate moguls. And I'll be like, well, I still love them. Uh, but I'll be like, cool, cool, cool. I just dedicated, you know, the last 26 years of my life to them <laughs> um, but no oh my gosh there's still something so fun about getting to see moguls I love them it looks really hard to me but it looks super fun and thank you so much for these tips that you've been giving us so far with gear and stuff but I think now I want us to be able to take this a little bit further specifically want to bring in a true gear expert uh I want to talk with someone on the show named Sean McCoy from Gear Junkie <laughs> Sean, are you there? Sorry there. I was uh, muted for a second. So, yes, I am here. <laughs> Hello, <Hi>, Sean. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Well, thanks for joining us as well to talk with us and uh, Sophia as well. Yeah, happy to be here. So you work for Gear Junkie. So I guess the first way to start off would be um, to help our audience understand what is your background? Um, how did you get yourself into Gear Junkie and what's your story with uh, skiing? Gear Junkie started out it, it literally... In the 90s, um, the founder of Gear Junkie, Stephen Reginald, is uh, was was a friend of mine in college. We launched a rock climbing publication called Vertical Jones um, that we published throughout our college career, uh, basically to begin a portfolio so we could get jobs after college. Um, so we published it for three years, and at that time, it did it did all right. It was it was a zine. You know, uh, we, you know, small magazine put out, uh, I think we did it monthly and quarterly sort of depending, sold it, sold it off uh, after three years. And he continued working in the gear space while I moved uh, out of the country to the Caribbean uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands for about 10 years where I was working at a newspaper. Um, fast forward to 2011 and I was moved back to the States, to Colorado, where my family is. And um, he and I started communicating again. And he had, over this period of time, built up Gear Junkie as a syndicated column across the United States that was being published in newspapers. He was in the New York Times to very small. It's published in the, well, it was at least recently still in the Summit Daily um, and lots of newspapers. But as newspapers dwindled, he began publishing it as an online, you know, web blog basically. Um, and I came on board with him as a, as a freelancer, more or less writing an article here, or there, uh, you know, from about 2011 and then gradually over time, um, started doing a little more and a little more and a little more until it became a full-time role. And, um, since 2011, I've been there, you know, pretty much cranking away at it every day. Now I am the editorial director for about uh, six websites, um, and I work with Gear Junkie still in, in, on a daily basis, uh, but I'm, I'm more overseeing other websites as well that do things uh, beyond outdoor media. Um, we do several, you know, home goods and other things as well. But uh, you know, my true passion is still really in the in the outdoors media space and, and outdoor gear. It's where I want to be spending my time, you know, outside using these things and, and being outside and, 
obviously good good equipment helps. Sean, where do you live? I live in Denver, Colorado. Oh, right in the thick of it there. How's mm-hmm. how's uh, backcountry ski season shaping up? Um, I am still a little early on it for myself. I, I tend to be a person who skis a lot more starting in, you know, maybe late December, January, and then try to save a lot of my legs and, and avoid injuries for the spring skiing when it's really good. Um, but I am excited about it. I know, um, a fair number of my friends have started getting out a little bit. Um, I'm also looking forward to a lot of Nordic skiing this year, probably, So yeah, now the big thing we want to talk about with bringing you onto the show is we want to talk specifically about the gear that's necessary for the backcountry and what the name of the game should be. So I guess the first thing we want to be starting off is like, what basic minimum gear should anyone looking to get into the backcountry be looking into? Um, Well, it's it starts in my mind with with education and with your your avalanche safety especially if you're if you're doing backcountry skiing that is something you have to have at the forefront of your mind um so avalanche equipment is a must-have whether or not you start out by renting it or buying it you need it and don't do it without it please um it's just one of those things that your life is too valuable to put that much risk at it and with that comes the education of knowing how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, it's not worth a lot to you. So um, it's those would be the first things I would say is to get the Avi gear, get the education. There are a lot of online resources right now because a lot of the Avi One courses, I know it's, it's kind of tricky with COVID that people um, are having more tr- trouble accessing that information. But there are a lot of good online resources. Um, there's ways to stay fairly safe on low angle um, terrain, but you need to know what that is before it's something that you can even think about doing. So knowing how to stay safe, staying on low angle terrain, staying out of out of high risk situations is really important. Then having the equipment that will keep you safe, you know, the minimal being beacon, probe, shovel, and uh, then starting to build a kit up from there. Um, to me, you know, you guys had mentioned the buy once, cry once sort of scenario. I, I like that a lot, uh, especially when it comes to things that you will probably need to have for a long time and are really critical. Um, for me, that's boots probably first and foremost, um, because that if you don't have good boots and they're not comfortable, you're going to be miserable. Um, and then from there, really figuring out what kind of backcountry skiing you want to do. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question because the gear goes a lot, a lot of different directions. Um, well, yeah, and that's the it was definitely an all broad question at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I actually think let's tear it down bit by bit. So the first one going to avalanche gear, and I think I want to bring Sophia in on this one too. Um, Sophia, can you describe a little bit for us what your Abbey pack would look like? Definitely, um, I have a backpack that is um, kind of backcountry compatible. It has a separate compartment. Um, for my shovel and probe, um, which stay in there all the time, except for um, sometimes I'll take them out to make sure they're dry and not frozen or have any ice in them. Um, And then it has enough room to bring all of my layers. I think um, we think about skiing, but in some ways, the majority of your time out there is winter hiking. 
And so making sure that you have, you know, spare socks and the layers you need and making sure everything that you would take on a, you know, three hour hike will also fit in your three hour ski backpack. Um, and then, of course, from there, um, the beacon uh, or transceiver is really important as well in that kind of avalanche kit. Um, and then I also always have um, a med kit, a repair kit, and um, like a lighter flashlight, headlamp, um, fire starting material. Um, and I've started actually carrying, um, a small rope with me as well, um, which you can use to kind of assess like different terrain. And it's just really handy in general, you know, for any type of like repair, it'd be expensive. Um, but you can actually find them that are pretty affordable too. With the beacons, is there um, been like development for you with technology changing all the time, um, always having to upgrade to later technology? Is there one specifically that you would recommend um, or just a trend that you've been seeing that's really good for beacons? Definitely. I think a modern beacon is really important. Um, the technology is definitely changing all the time. Um, and I definitely am like a penny pincher in many regards and not that <laughs> way at all with my beacon. Um, I think it's the one of the most important tools you have with you going into the backcountry. Um, and I really love the idea of even being able to rent one if it feels like too big of a burden to buy a new one. Um, but something that's up to date within the last like three to four years is really important. Um, I'd be really weary of buying a used one because beacons are pretty sensitive. If they get dropped, if they get hit, if they, you know, have the batteries are left in them for a long time and they start to like corrode, all of those things will really affect your beacon. So I think new is the safest way to go. Um, and then one that you know how to understand. There are a lot of different beacons that have different bells and whistles, which can be really helpful for kind of those experts, you know, ski patrollers and first responders who know how to use them. Um, but just because it's more expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's better. And that all those extra features um, can help keep you safe, but you have to know how to use them. So the three that I really look for um, is a user-friendly interface. I have to know how to use it. And then um, the range, the search range, um, the beacon I use is the Arva um, Neo, and it has a 70-meter search range, um, which is one of the highest. And I'm on Arva's athlete team, um, so just recognize I have some bias there. Um, but I was pretty purposeful in searching them out because I really do um, trust their gear immensely. Um, and then signal interference. Uh, beacons can be affected by the technology we bring. Um, and I have a lot of it. I have my phone constantly, you know, I'm on Gaia, I'm taking pictures. Uh, I have a radio for communications, I have a GoPro. And so I'm pretty loaded up with technology. Um, so making sure that your beacon can help with that interference, um, is really important. Cool. And then Sean, I want to bring you back in on this one to talk about two other pieces of kit uh, regarding avalanche gear, uh, airbag float packs and Avalon. Uh, I guess start by asking Sophia, do, do you have either of those in your kit? I don't. Um, I am looking to get um, an airbag this season. Um, and for me, I compare it to my helmet or my mouth guard, that it's a tool that I think I want and that there's specific uses. I don't ski in a mouth guard every single day. Um, but if I'm hitting a certain type of jump, 
um, I absolutely have it and I put it in. But I also know that if I take a hard crash, that, you know, my mouth guard's not going to prevent me from blowing my knee or it's not going to prevent me from hurting my back or while it might help, you know, me not bite through my lip, there's still like face injuries I can have um, from wearing it. So I try to keep that perspective um, around the airbag as well. Sean, are those airbags pretty affordable? I think they're pretty expensive. Yeah, they're they're a big investment. Um, and I would echo most of what Sophia said. I, I really agree with a lot of that. I think um, airbags have a place. They're definitely a, can put you in a much better situation, but they are not infallible in any way, and they are a lot of money. Um, and I think it's something that you don't necessarily – you wouldn't want to rely on it to stay safe. It's an absolute last resort. It's, you know, airbags in a car. You don't want to test them, but if you have them, it's not a bad <laughs> thing. Um Having spoken with a lot of other skiers about them and people that use them and don't use them, a lot of, a lot of the conversation comes down to, you know, if you get caught in an avalanche, will you be able to set it off? Will you be able to pull the, the ripcord on it? And, um, you know, will you notice or know at that time that it's time to pull it? Um, so it is a big investment. I don't think it's a bad thing to have, and it's definitely a great tool to have in your kit, but it, it's probably not the first thing I would go out and try to purchase. That's It's more of an advanced tool that you'll want once you really start knowing the backcountry. Yeah. Sophia, you mentioned that you would use it in certain instances. What instances would you take an airbag on if, if you had one? For me, one of the biggest trade-offs for an airbag is weight and how much room I have in my backpack. So if I'm um, going on a, you know, a big eight hour day, there's a potential that that weight will slow me down. And um, being able to move quickly and efficiently in your fitness, um, especially in the spring, when you have like wet slide conditions, if I know I need to be skiing on top of my line at 9am, and then it's potentially getting more dangerous after that, that weight might actually inhibit my safety rather than add to my safety. But if I'm skiing in the resort and maybe um, going into the backcountry on like lift access terrain, weight might not be the factor I'm concerned about. Um, I'm able to move more quickly through the terrain. I'm primarily heading down. Um, so I'm willing to bring this extra safety system with me um, because I'm not making that compromise in the mountains. I had a follow-up question for you too about you, you were talking about interference with your beacon and your technology. Could you dive into that a little deeper and how do you prevent that? Yeah. So beacons use, um, wavelengths to find each other. That's how they communicate and different pieces of technology actually interfere with that. And the way beacons work is they have these flux lines in which they send out signals and then they get those signals back. And so different pieces of technology can interfere with that search. And so different beacons have the ability to like recognize when they have interference. So if I turn my beacon on and I put it on top of my phone, it helps me know that it's having that interference. Um, and a lot of times uh, to deal with that interference, it will even reduce um, 
the surge radius. So my bacon typically can function at a 70 meter surge radius, um, but it knows it needs to be more precise when it's having interference. And so it will um, analyze that signal and then kind of like retransform how it's using that signal and might reduce my search range a little bit to make sure I'm getting an accurate reading rather than, you know, being sent off 10 feet in the wrong direction and then coming back. Interesting. Well, I guess, Sophia, you mentioned probably not a good idea to buy a beacon used. Sean, this question is for you. What's it going to cost you? What's the damage there? Um, you're going to be looking and depending on if you're getting at a great deal on sale to full retail and the beacon, probably between 300 and 500-ish dollars, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and I agree, like it's not a place to pinch pennies and not to get used. Um, yeah. And then something now that I want to take on to the next point, um, Sophia, you were referencing a little bit about having uh, lighter gear uh, as you're traveling through the back country. And now I want to start applying this to the other pieces of gear that you're going to be bringing with you. So I want to start, I guess, uh, by Sean talking with you about clothing and maybe one you talked about earlier, boots. So I guess my first question regarding boots is what's really different from like an alpine touring boot compared to like resort alpine boots? The biggest difference is going to be the the range of motion in your cuff. Um, that's that's the number one thing. And then number two is probably going to be weight and stiffness. Um, touring boots tend to be a little softer than a pure alpine boot. But um, the variety of both of these can be pretty drastic. Um, and that's where I think it comes down to if you're in the, in the market shopping for them is to really look at yourself and your skiing and try to figure out what you really want to do and how you're honestly going to use those. Um, you could get a backcountry boot, um, that has a great range of motion is very light, but doesn't necessarily perform as well downhill or won't perform in as broad a range of bindings. So if you're going to use it 70 or 80% of the time inbounds at a resort and only 10 or 20% of the time out backcountry touring, you may want to get a slightly heavier boot that performs better on the downhill and doesn't have as great a range of motion and is maybe a little warmer. Whereas if you plan to do a ton of long distance touring, you're going to do a traverse of the Wind River range, you probably want to get a lighter boot that's going to allow you to have a great range of motion in your cuff and maybe doesn't, it might sacrifice some of the downhill performance, uh, for, for really being able to be light and fast. That, that would be kind of my take on boots. It's, it's a big area. I mean, and you start looking at schema racing and stuff like that. Those boots are just crazy light and incredibly, you know, awesome on the uphill, but just downhill is brutal. Sophia, what, what boot are you skiing in these days in the backcountry? I'm in the Fisher um, Ranger Free. Uh, I ski a 115 Flex, and it's pretty funny. I did all of my different jack-of-all-trades thing in the exact same boot. Um, so kind of echoing what Sean was saying, um, I try to find a boot that I can actually use both inbounds and in touring. Um, for me, I want to be able to not have to think about how I'm skiing and just show up to ski. So it's hard for me to ski a boot three days a week at the ski resort and then three days a week in the backcountry and constantly be switching back and forth. And so what's awesome is a lot of these boot companies are making boots that work 
both with a pin binding, um, which is a lighter weight touring binding than maybe a frame binding, um, but also still work when you click into your Alpine bindings. They still have that bigger toe piece um, that fits. And so that's the style boot that I have. Um, and I've, I've loved it. I think it um, skis really well, and I've been really impressed with boot technology. And I think what's also really important in boots is how they fit. Um, even if a boot theoretically matches how you want to ski it, um, people have really different foot sizes, whether you have a wide foot or a narrow foot. Um, so one of those measurements that goes across the boot is called the last um, which I didn't even know until <laughs> this year, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, that there was like a really specific number that if you have a narrow foot or a big foot. Um, so what's awesome is um, another expert who's really good at this are boot fitters. And you can walk in and say, what kind of foot do I have? Like, do I have high arches? Do I have a wide foot? Um, and then you can come back to like what Sean is saying and saying, okay, like now, how do I want to use my boot? Um, but those little differences go a long way in kind of keeping your feet happy and comfortable on the slopes. So that's kind of a good money saving tip. Actually, you just gave us just find a boot that will work in both scenarios, both the backcountry and the resort and use just one boot for both. Um, were you able to also use this boot on say this longer tour that you did of the wind river? Route. I did. Yeah. Um, all 14 <laughs> days um, in it. I have thought about maybe doing a little bit of a lighter boot, um, but I've been really impressed um, in using them as well. And it's just really nice that when you transition to that downhill to feel really solid and really safe um, and like I can still ski to my best ability. And do you have kind of the same sort of scenario for skis too, one that you could use both in the resort and in backcountry? I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a versatile setup that could kind of save people some cash by. Yeah. And I'm curious about this one too, because my real skiing experience has been resort and very, very little in the backcountry. So yeah, I'm curious what the real differences are between backcountry skis and resort skiing and like what could be a happy medium. Yeah, um, that's something I, I actually do quite a bit of, um, I, partially just because I don't really enjoy the packing every time I have to go out. So what I'll often do is I'll grab a pair. I have I have a lot of skis and a lot of boots, which is you know kind of a blessing and curse of my job is that I have to try out all this stuff. And it's great, but you also find things that you love and then don't get to ski on them as much. So um, I have those same boots, boots actually, as you do. And I love them too. There's those Fisher Rangers are great. Um, and, uh, they work, I use them in a similar way as well as a couple other pairs of boots. But, um, one thing that you can use, uh, to, to make that work is, is a binding and ski that can do both. And I am a fan and it, it's probably a little controversial. A lot of people don't love them is like the Solomon shift, uh, binding is in my mind a great alter like kind of compromise if you ski a lot downhill um you can throw them in the car go up and ski inbounds all day with a, a normal din release binding and then if you decide you want to go on a backcountry tour the next day you just flip the binding and use it as a touring binding um marker kingpin is a similar design and there's a few of them out there um that do give you that kind of a pure alpine style step in binding that will release with a normal DIN certification and then will also tour pretty well. And there are definitely a major improvement over a frame binding. Um, 
if you plan to do a lot of backcountry skiing, though, they are heavy and they're a little cumbersome to uh, switch from, you know, to transition from from touring to skiing to touring again. So um, I know they aren't necessarily the most popular for people who are really back serious backcountry skiers, but for someone who does a lot of side country um, or may just want to have an alternative, you know, for if you're going to go out for three or four days and two or three of the days will be inbounds, a couple of days will be backcountry. It's a, it's a nice setup. I have one of those that I often throw in the car if I don't know if I'm going to do any backcountry touring. Um, and of course, I think a lot of the good pin tech setups can transition to inbounds pretty well as well, as long as you have a ski that is, uh, is capable on all mountain conditions and not too, uh, not too super light because some of those can get a little bit, um, they, they aren't no, the most fun to ski downhill sometimes. So if you have a ski that kind of finds a nice happy medium, I, I feel like the bindings is a, is a big piece of the puzzle. I agree for sure. I think that it's really nice to have one that does both. I think if you're looking to cut weight, bindings are an awesome place to cut weight. Um, I think they make a really, really big difference um, in dropping that weight and even kind of like how big of a step you can take and how efficient. Um, So I think if you're going to be doing more than five days of backcountry skiing a year where you're touring up or even just touring up um, after work at like a ski hill that allows you to do it, I would encourage people to look for a lighter binding and maybe invest in that. I think they also survive really well. I think that bindings hold their value over time great. And I think this is somewhere that you can maybe look for a used setup. And what's great is that um, I think in the last probably like three to four years, the availability of finding a really nice used setup um, has grown. Where I think when sort of these pin bindings were brand new and a little harder to find, you really could only find like an old, old setup where now you can find kind of even in the past two to three years, a really nice pair of skis and a really nice pair of bindings that do come in a used capacity. Um, And I would feel safe continuing to ski on those. Is there a lightest binding recommendation that you suggest? Yeah, I think that there's actually um, a bunch of different ones. I think switching to the pin versus a frame binding um, is going to just give you that weight saving capability. And then from there, you can kind of think again about how you're skiing. Do you want to ski that still has brakes on it? Um, If you're going to ski in the resort, I would definitely recommend still having a pin binding with brakes. Um, There are rules and regulations that you have to have your equipment stop. And while some of these bindings have clips that you can clip to yourself, so they still don't run away from you. um, If I'm skiing in resort, I want to ski that has a brake on it um, for the safeties of others and safety of myself. Do you find that um, the lighter the binding is, the more expensive it gets? I think there's definitely the extreme end. And as Sean (laughs) was mentioning, kind of the schema racing side is going to be willing to save those ounces in every capacity um, where I'm not necessarily looking to do that. And I think that kind of mid-range weight pin binding is going to save you, you know, maybe a pound between that and a frame binding or even like two pounds maybe. And Sean can probably help clarify if I'm out of the ballpark. And then, you know, the next step up, in price range is going to save you like three to six ounces. I don't know. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that entirely. And I, I think that it's worth noting. And you probably, if you're just getting into backcountry skiing, you don't want Schemo race gear. Um, not only <laughs> is it, it's expensive, but that's not the only thing. It's also you're giving up all kinds of features that you would want as a touring skier. Um, the Schemo stuff is just extremely minimalistic. It doesn't have brakes, doesn't have... Uh, a lot of the releases are extremely question like they're not they're not designed to be a great release they're not designed for downhill performance they're just meant to be very light um i've spent quite a bit of time in that stuff because i that's that's one of the things i do a, a fair bit in the winter um transitioning from ultra running in the summer to schemo in the winter and schemo gear is amazing it's it weighs nothing you can fly up the hill you can f- ski okay down the hill but it's also uncomfortable and not fun to ski um you won't enjoy making beautiful turns and things like that and powder on it so um if you plan to ski mo race i would say start out with your normal backcountry tour gear and see if you like it and then gradually upgrade because i think you know schemo racers tend to be kind of a, a nutty group that certainly aren't going to give you trouble about having gear that isn't great for it they're just going to be stoked to see you out there doing it so you'll have heavy gear you'll go a little slower but you'll see if you like it and then maybe one day you'll want to put on the spandex and i think they have actually have a category for that don't they that's called the the metal category in schemo <laughs> yeah. at least the one at at my resort, uh, Big Sky here, we have a metal category that people, you know, race and they're like heavy. Yeah. Here. And then you have all the guys in their like tight spandex suits and yep. <laughs> look at all Euro. It's pretty fun to watch. Yeah. So and I would say like for this kind of stuff, like it's also okay to be heavy. Just recognize what you're trying to do in your ski tours. I think, um, again, like using a frame binding to get into the sport and to get, you know, 10 days a year in the backcountry where you get to like love it and join in. And then you also can use them, you know, as exercise on your local ski hill. Like that's awesome. And if that gets you into the sport, do it. Recognize that, you know, if you're going to do like a six hour day, or if you're looking maybe to like continue to grow, that there definitely are like compromises. But I would say like, if you're not going to become a backcountry skier, because you don't want to pay the extra 200 bucks on bindings, like that's okay. Like invest that money into your beacon, invest that money into your education, learn if you love it, learn what kind of skier you want to be. And then recognize that a lot of these skis hold their value and that there's going to be someone behind you who's also looking to get into the exact same thing you are. So be prepared that you might, you know, give them to a friend four years later and now you can help mentor someone on the same path you did or recognize that you can probably sell them because someone else is coming up behind you and looking to grow in the same way. And I think that like, if you feel stumped by picking the right gear, like skis and bindings, um, and boots, I would say boots probably less so because they're, you can actually have a really miserable day in them. Um, but you probably won't have such a miserable day that you won't come back to it because you picked a binding that was heavier than another one. Interesting. There's another part to, uh, this equation that I'm curious about too, again, wanting to transition into backcountry where binding with skis. I want to talk a little bit about skins. Is there kind of a one size fits all for skins or are there different ones for different situations that are recommended? 
I'm so excited to hear Sean answer this question. Because I'm like, oh. I like New Year's resolution is to be like, that's a great question. I have uh, no idea. Well, I would, I would say in short, uh, for me, if you're new to the backcountry, my, this is very opinion too, it would be to get a higher traction skin to start and not worry about the glide so much because I have definitely seen new backcountry skiers as well as myself struggle with slipping backwards while you're trying to climb. Um, the differences in skins, and obviously there, there are a number of them, you know, being things like the type of glue that they use to hold them onto the ski. Will they re-adhere easily after you've, you know, gotten a little snow on them and things like that, as well as um, the actual material that, that digs into the snow. And for me, higher traction on the uphill is probably a good place to start if you're not trying to get a lot of glide out of your skins and don't care about moving fast over the flatter pieces of terrain. For a newer skier, I think it'll make it a little easier for you to be able to make sure you're not, you know, slipping backwards. I've it, it can be a bit of a struggle for someone who's who's just learning out um, to not have that problem when you get in steep little sections or, you know, stepping over like logs or things sometimes. Um, but I mean, I'd love to hear what Sophia has to say about that too, because <laughs> it's a tough one. Um, it sounds it, like, I, I uh, no more. You guys are playing hot potato here yeah. with this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough question. Yeah. Um, I think again, skins, uh, I don't know. I need to learn more. I need to do some more research. I agree about having traction is nice. Um, they're really frustrating when they glop. I think skins are probably a piece of technology that we will see continue to grow and evolve in backcountry skiing. It's, I think, somewhere that like these bindings and these skis and these boots, like, wow, my boots do incredible things and my skin still glop. Um, so I think like prepare to like be frustrated by skins and to not feel alone in that. Um, and I think more management of skins and learning different tips and tricks like um, glide wax is something you can put on them to help them not like glop. Um, which is where the snow sticks to the bottom of the skins, um, especially kind of when it's like a moist snow, um, it's called glopping. And what happens is now your skis weigh six pounds more and you can't take a step. Um, and it's really frustrating. Um, sometimes your skins don't stick to the bottom of your skis because it gets too cold or you get snow on them. So I would say expect trouble with all skins um, and know that there's not a pair out there that's perfect. Um, but ask your mentors, ask your friends what they do when their skin struggle and different tips. I think the other thing, if you're using skins, have some sort of ski strap. Um, those fillet straps that are kind of the plastic stretchy ones um, with the kind of holes in them um, are awesome because if your skins fail, you can attach three or four of those and actually tie your skins back onto your skis. And that's a way to get out of situations um, when things aren't going well. Yeah, that's a great tip. And you can use those things for just about anything too. They always come in handy for something. Yeah. Fix a broken pole or probably could splint someone if you needed to. They seem to be very useful in the backcountry. And I think that's a big difference. Like if your skis and things kind of like break 
in the resort, like you can get a ride down, you can take a chairlift down, like there's probably someone there that can help you. And just recognizing anytime you're in the backcountry, I stop and ask myself, like, if something was to break today, like, how would I get out of this situation? Um, which is just good to have in your your mind. I am the least handy person ever. So it's like something I've had to, again, ask, like, how do you fix something if it breaks? Um, and those little tips and tricks. And you can also, like, practice and get to use your gear closer to home until you feel more comfortable having those problem-solving skills when you're further out um, and something goes awry. I took an avalanche class in Cook City a couple of years ago, and there were these two young brothers, and they were like 19 and 20, and they were going to MSU Bozeman. And I, I was like, okay, you guys, what are you doing? And they're like, yeah, our mom bought us this trip because she was scared, scared for our safety. And those two guys both broke their bindings and they wound up like strapping their with duct tape to get out of there. So I totally... Uh, agree that it's a good idea to take some kind of repair kit or, um, know how to get out of there. You know, if things don't go right, um, what's in your repair kit, Sophia? My repair kit, uh, has a ton of zip ties. Not only are they the best thing ever for pranks, but they're a great tool for, uh, fixing your gear. Cause they attach to everything. A lot of those, um, ski straps, as I kind of mentioned before, um, I have super glue and, um, steel wool in case one of my bindings rips out and I still have the screw. You can stuff the hole in your binding, put super glue, shove that screw back in there. Um, and it can be a pretty good temporary fix. Um, of course I have duct tape and uh, I'm trying to think what else. Um, I usually have a, a small screwdriver and a few extra screws. Um, I have, um, a spare, uh, part for my boot buckles if they were to break and, um, yeah, I'm trying to think that's mostly it right now. That, yeah. that covers it. I would, I would, the only thing that I would add on that, there probably fits in screwdrivers, a Leatherman tool mm. that I use for pretty much everything, but that's something I wouldn't go out without personally. Um, I've had one epic in my life that happened when I was about 20, um, where it pretty much saved us. We, although it's, we still ended up with problems, but got stuck, um, ice or climbing a uh, crest stone needle in the winter. And, it, both of our ski boot, ski bindings broke on the way out. And this was back in the era of like uh, steel edged touring skis. So it was a real disaster trying to get those things to function. And we had gotten like three feet of snow while we were out there. So it was a, it was a slog for like 10 miles. And the only thing that got us back out was having Leatherman tool with us. That was, that was pretty key at that time. Yeah, a repair kit. I think um, other like rogue things I have, I kind of mentioned earlier, a flashlight, a med kit. Um, I have a spare battery for my phone, like um, one of those, yeah, external batteries and a phone cord. Um, just because I use my phone a lot in the backcountry, whether it's like a tool to call for help or to take photos. Um, and then, yeah, I use it a lot for navigation. Um, so that's like because my phone like struggles in the cold so much having a spare battery, even though it's a little bit on the heavier end, um, it's always in my backpack too. Is there any item out there that is like a sock that your phone can sit in that helps it stay warm or insulated? Yeah. Yeah, they exist. Um, Helly Hansen makes one, I think. 
as well as a company called Cold Case, um, which is a very new startup out of Denver. It's pretty small, but they make um, an aerogel phone foam ca- foam case. So aerogel is this. If you're not familiar, it's a really lightweight, uh, the most insulating um, material on earth. It weighs like about the same as air. It's just a touch heavier than air. And they use it in these, in phone cases. It's also used in oil pipelines. So that's where it was originally created was for that and for NASA. But uh, it will keep your phone warm longer. And I think some, some jackets have a pocket designed specifically for that. Yeah. And you have any tips for keeping it warm while you're in the backcountry? I keep mine in my pocket personally. And uh, I, I usually keep mine in a pant pocket, but I wear my beacon up on my chest and that's not something everybody does. I usually wear it in the, in the holder that comes with the beacon because I end up switching beacons a lot more often than most people will because I'm trying out different gear from different companies um, so I never want to do it in pockets because every pair of pants pocket is different and I might not know which, where it is exactly. I want to be able to reach to it every time. So, um, I usually keep my phone in my pant pocket and then my beacon on my chest. So they're always apart. Um, I don't know, Sophia, where do you do with yours? Totally curious. I struggle with this. I, um, my pants pocket hangs a little low, so it actually hits my knee when I'm touring. Um, and so I am constantly like, okay, I want it easily accessible. So sometimes I'll put it in my jacket pocket and then just recognizing that it's closer to my beacon. Um, but it doesn't affect, it doesn't hit my knee the same way when I ski back down. Um, so a lot of times because I'm using my phone more on the way up, um, cause I'm checking the map you know, assessing terrain, looking um, for cues and markers, checking my elevation, um, kind of those features, you know, like I'm just on Gaia a lot going on the way up, especially if I'm in a new zone. And then when I'm ready to ski, I'll like, like, okay, like about to take a bigger risk. Um, Maybe I'm moving into more avalanche terrain on the way down. And then I take my phone and I put it in my leg pocket as well. It's a good tip. You could move it around. Um, The other thing I'll do is I'll slap a hand warmer on the back of it. Um, if I'm nervous that it's going to die and that I'm going to use it on a bigger day. So that helps to understand when you're using, uh, what we're using your phone for electronics for, for like navigation. So you said you're using Gaia a bit for navigation. Do you carry SATCOM with you at all? Most of my partners have it. And so I am a cheapskate and I am relying on them, but it's also a big question mark on my, like, I should probably purchase this, um, this year. The other thing that's great about those devices is if you do buy them, um, they have, uh, insurance for search, search, Ooh, pardon me for search and rescue tongue twister there for me today. <laughs> yeah. Cause a helicopter ride could definitely cost a lot of money. So. It's like fifteen thousand um, dollars at the minimum. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's like some other sneaky benefits of those programs as well. Um, also, you can buy that kind of insurance as well, which is cool. This is a lot of good stuff you guys have been sharing with us about gear and kind of like as someone who is still very inexperienced with the backcountry all the way from skins up to everything you're going to be carrying with you. It's really good stuff to know. So I guess kind of a good way of wrapping this all up. What would you say the key points are for a person who's just looking to try out backcountry skiing? What are the most important investments you can make and how can you save some money doing it? I would say... Beacon probe shovel, 
are, you must have them. If you're going to do it more than a couple times, buy them first, you'll need them. And otherwise you could rent that on your first, you know, go out once or twice and rent it. Um, Denver has several places that rent them. I don't know about around Jackson. I'd imagine they do. Um, those would be the first places I'd invest money. Second would be boots. Third would be bindings slash skis. Um, personally, I started out you know, also backcountry skiing on a pair of old skis. I think it was some uh, Rocky Mountain Underground Apostles from quite a long time ago and had put on some frame bindings on them just to be able to get out on those and then gradually upgraded my skis and my bindings. But the boots will make a lot of difference. Um, those would be mine. And then you can use basically any backpack that'll hold your shovel and probe. Obviously there are better ones that are designed to manage that equipment and keep it really accessible. But, um, I would say the beacon probe shoveler are, are absolutely essential. So start there. Definitely echo that same sentiment. I think if you're going to save money and rent a beacon, rent it for an extra two days and go out and practice with it. Because I think it's better to have a modern beacon that you're renting versus uh, a super old one that could potentially be broken and not work anyways. But at the end of the day, if you don't know how to use it and you haven't practiced with it, um, it doesn't matter how much money you're saving or what kind it is. It needs to, you need to know how to use it. Um, ski boots, ski boots are really important. Your feet would like to be happy and that makes a big difference. Um, and then I think everything from there is, yeah, has its own pros and cons lift, list. Um, but don't, you know, be embarrassed that you're like trying something out or wanting to get out there. I think as long as you're being safe and you're trying, you know, to grow, like there's room for that in skiing. And I think that like, if you can invest in your safety and invest in your partners, the rest of the gear will come. Um, but don't let it be the limiting factor in getting to, to try something new. I would say like, if you want to save money on gear and invest in hiring a guide for a day to take you out to learn, like I would do that in a heartbeat. That's a great idea. I would echo what Sophia said on that too, about the beacon and knowing how to use it. There are a lot of good online resources right now that are coming together that some of them are, are, you have to buy, but they're fairly affordable that can get you a really at least basic understanding of how to use this equipment and how to stay safe in the backcountry. So before even going out that first time, I would either that or have someone that's a mentor going out with a guide, something like that. It just, I would be hesitant to go out with a group of people who have no education on it, on it at once and not have somebody who could lead you. You know, you'd need to know what you're doing and it. Try to learn before you, you know, don't take the, the risks lightly. I yeah. That's all I'm saying. And uh, buying a guide, like if you get a group of like three or four people and you've all taken your Avi One course together and you're excited to go out together, if you call these guiding companies, a lot of times you'll be able to do a private group for about $500 a day. And while that sounds like totally expensive, a lot of times they'll have skis that you can borrow and gear that you can learn and use. Um, and if you do it on the front end, now you're in the mountains with someone for, you know, four to five hours in a day and you can ask what they put in their pack and you can gain value and see their gear and ask these questions. And then when you're ready to, you know, drop $800 on a pair of skis, at least you're purchasing the right ones and you've already had some experience and know what you like and don't like. Um, and maybe that'll, that'll stop the buy once, cry once <laughs> experience. <laughs> 
Those are such great tips and yes, a great ending note to think about. So Sean, Sophia, we thank you so much for both being here today and providing this excellent advice for our audience. Um, Hopefully a lot of people take it to heart and uh, we get more people out in the backcountry this year. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Sophia, I have one last question for you. What's on tap for this year? You got any big plans? This year, um, I'm really excited because I feel as if I have grown from being kind of like a a partner and a follower in a lot of these missions into feeling a little bit more comfortable being a leader. And I'm always weary of setting goals um, only as like objectives. Um, So one of my goals is to step up and feel more comfortable taking different friends on their first adventures um, and being more of a teacher. Um, And then this trip to Denali, I think, will be a big learning experience for me as well. Well, we wish you luck in that. That'll, That'll be a great, great trip. Thank you. Thanks, Sophia. Thanks, Sean. So great to have you both on the show. Wish you all the best. Now, here's what you can do to follow them. Let's start with Sean. www.gearjunkie.com, J-U-N-K-I-E, gearjunkie.com is the website you can go to for some really good reviews of backcountry ski gear and pretty much everything else you need for the backcountry. Sophia, follow her by going to Instagram, at Sophia Schwartz. Really easy. Sophia Schwartz. May the Schwartz be with you. Sorry, that was in the back of my mind every time I said Schwartz, and I just had to say it, so sorry. All right, coming up in two weeks on our next episode of the Out and Back podcast, we're going to be catching up with a man by the name of Luke Smithwick. We were really lucky to get a chance to sit down and talk with Luke while he was in the middle of taking a break from hitting all of these really cool brand new ski runs in the Himalayas that nobody's ever done before. Really, one of the big things we're going to be talking about with Luke is why the Himalayas might just become the next big backcountry skiing area in the world. And of course, we're going to learn from Luke directly what it's like doing big backcountry skiing in the Himalayas. So make sure to tune in for that one if you're really interested in hearing about a really cool adventure from a really cool guy. In the meantime, while you're, uh, what's the word, homesick for another episode of, I don't know, podcast sick for our next episode in two weeks, a couple things we need you to do for us. If you can, please leave a review for the episode on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed, um, helps keep us boosted in the ratings, and uh, really, at the end of the day, it just brings a big smile to mine and Mary's face, and we just always love having that. And then, of course, the other thing, please do yourself a favor and go over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast and snatch up that really nice 50% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership. You'll love it because you'll only have to pay half price on the best backcountry navigation app, And your family will love it that you could save a little bit money in your pockets and buy them a, I don't want to say pizza because I've been saying pizza for a while. Um, And I don't know if I should be touting pizza because you're going out into the backcountry and you want to be in good shape. And I know pizza's not the healthiest. So um, how about this? The money you save from the 50% discount on GaiaGPS.com, use it to buy a little something nice for your family. How's that sound? Yeah. Anyway. GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get up to 50% off on a Gaia GPS premium membership. Whew. Okay, I'm going to sign off before I do any more damage. So, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in two weeks on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Take care. Mm-hmm.